Welcome to Operator's Manual, a show about the stories of interesting founders and employees. I'm your host, Daniel Petkovich. My guest this week is Jason Gus, my co-founder at Octane Lending. Octane Lending is one of the fastest growing niche lenders in the world and valued in the hundreds of millions of dollars. Jason, welcome to the show. To kick us off, tell us a bit about Octane Lending. So Octane Lending is a point-of-sale financing platform for the power sports market. So the power sports space is made up of motorcycles, ATVs, which are four-wheelers, UTVs, which are side-by-sides, things like golf carts, uh, snowmobiles, and jet skis. And the financing process works almost identically to the auto finance market in that almost all consumers will purchase and finance their purchases through a dealership that sells these power sports units just like you would do with a car. But unlike the auto market, none of the lender aggregators, basically the tools that the finance managers were using to help consumers find their loans, and any sort of real penetration. So what would happen is the finance manager would take your credit app when you're ready to buy, and then rekey that customer's information repeatedly through multiple websites, which was very inefficient and tedious. So we saw an opportunity to build an aggregator that helped bring uh, all of the different lenders into one spot so that a finance manager could quickly and efficiently find the best lender for the consumer. That's fascinating. I want to get into the evolution of the business in a bit, but maybe we could start with how it all started. So interestingly, uh, I would say Octane's founding moments actually occurred um, when I was staffed on a project in Seattle and I had dinner with you. Um, at the time, um, you know, effectively, I was a, one year out of college. We were both one year out of college, actually less than that. And your first year out of college, you're, you're generally not that open about perhaps the, the limitations or the displeasures of your, of your work. And we had a very open conversation, the two of us, where we both basically talked about our desire to do something entrepreneurial. And it was really the conversation that we had that made me realize that actually I didn't want to be a consultant. I wanted to do something much more entrepreneurial. And uh, it really kind of gave me the conviction to start trying to figure out an idea that I found compelling. And interestingly, um, one of my old coworkers um, you know, was telling me about how inefficient the power sports uh, market was, and that became one of the the, the places that we, we used to investigate opportunities. If you recall, we had a rudimentary process for coming up and vetting startup ideas. How did we come up with the concept for Octane Lending? Recall before, before we really committed to Octane, um, we really wanted to run a process to identify a series of real problems in the market problems that we could provide specific business solutions to add value and build a great business. And so in order for us to do that, uh, the two of us actually came up with a, a list of questions that we were uh, you know, calling people off our uh, college alumni networks and, and, and having them answer to try to come up with a curated list of potentially uh, very attractive business problems to solve. So the three questions that we would ask are, what do you hate most about your job? What are the biggest inefficiencies in your market? And what would you pay me to build for you? The reason why we chose those three problems and those three questions to ask is, one, people love complaining about their job if you just give them an opportunity to. And what's really exciting to me when I hear someone complain about their job is they're usually complaining because there's usually a business problem that they're experiencing and pain point that they're experiencing that if resolved, either A, they would pay for that solution, or B, it would add tremendous value, make them happier, and uh, improve the business. 
And so we probably had something like, you know, 15 or 20 conversations across various markets. So anywhere from uh, people working at the New York Times to a landman uh, working on oil fields to the owner of, um, you know, hydro plants and stuff like that and people working in heavy industry. And we came up with a list of uh, five ideas that we found compelling and um, including the power sports idea. And we applied for funding for all of them. And, uh, you know, thankfully, in retrospect, uh, the power sports idea was the one which uh, got the, the best, uh, got picked up for funding for, uh, for, from an incubator, Dream Adventures, down in Austin. Um, and I say thankfully, because in retrospect, knowing what I know now is by far the most compelling and, uh, and the most exciting and best market, uh, I believe, that, that we had discovered up to that point. So let's rewind to the first six months of Octane Lending. Our product was basically a common app for filling out financing applications for power sport lenders. What was our day-to-day like back then? So um, I described the first six months of Octane Lending as uh, breaking through a wall every single day and most of the time not getting through that wall. Um, So whether it's in every single part of the business, so you're just facing a massive uphill battle anytime you're trying to sell anything because you really have a product that doesn't work yet and you don't have any market adoption to be able to prove that it works. One of the things that I remember from our first six months is just how incredibly hard it was to raise any sort of capital for our business. I mean, the, the second uh, business I did trim, you know, we raised hundreds of thousands of dollars in a matter of months because we were working on, you know, a consumer finance app, which almost everyone can relate to. Uh, talk a little about what it was like to fundraise for Octane in the pre-seed stage. Yeah, so it's interesting. I think consumer and niche businesses kind of have the polar opposite challenges. So um, consumer businesses, I think it's probably easier to get your first several hundred thousand. As you mentioned, it was really easy for you guys to do that. And then raising your subsequent rounds are way harder because the amount of traction you need to have to show you know kind of interesting revenue is a lot harder to achieve. Whereas conversely, niche opportunities, the barrier you have to break is proving to someone that this is a real business problem who can't relate to it. But once you're able to get that initial seed capital, it's way easier for you to get to interesting levels of revenue. And this is just a theory. I believe it actually does. I've seen it to be true anecdotally, but I believe that's actually how it is. And so as you suspected, it was a terrible experience to raise our seed. Uh, I pitched almost 200 people uh, before one person said yes. And then once someone says yes, it's really easy to fill out the round. Um, but the challenges are just like you described. Um, you have to convince someone that you're solving a real problem. And the reason why that's way more challenging is with the consumer thing, it's very easy to put yourselves in the shoes of other consumers. Oh, yeah, I've had that problem before. Yeah, it's a pain in the ass that I'm getting charged all of these different subscription fees. I I understand that problem. Now, I'll try to understand the problem of a finance manager and a power sports dealer if you're a venture capitalist who's probably never ridden a power sports unit or even been to the states where they're very popular. It's difficult to really understand. And so that was really the first challenge. And the way that we solved it is we got a motorcycle insurance company actually was our first yes. And the reason that they were our first yes is they actually understood the problem. And therefore, they they knew that what we were doing was real. And actually, their validation is what kind of led other VC firms uh, to, to, to be more comfortable with us. 
walk us through what the initial Octane Lending product was and and the, the market reception to it. So when we spoke to a lot of uh, dealers, the first thing that we, we recognized as an outsider is that in the auto market, you have platforms like DealerTrack, Apple One, and others that basically have most of the mainstream lenders on them. So a finance manager can with um, complete one credit application and get responses from as many lenders as they like. And the reason why that's critical is the finance manager is sitting across from a consumer. The consumer is there with them. And so they want to be as quick as possible in getting the response back to their customer so they could focus on structuring the deal, the deal on helping the consumer close the transaction. Because most of the finance manager's job is actually helping the consumer structure and close out the transaction in a way that works for them. They're trying to figure out a way to make it affordable, accessible to their customer. And so they'd much rather know what the max finance amount is, the down payment requirement, and uh, the interest rate and be able to spend most of the time on the structuring side as opposed to most of their time keying in the credit application and waiting for a response. And so intuitively, when we looked at this market, we knew that an aggregator would provide value to to the finance manager because it would get them to their answer faster. Um, And so our initial product, um, effectively, we had this, this chicken and egg problem. How do you get lenders on the platform without dealers? How do you get dealers on the platform without lenders? And so our initial entry into the market, we really only had two choices. Uh, we either had to build a platform that enabled dealers to apply to multiple lenders without having formal relationships with those lenders, or we had to find lenders that um, really had no penetration in this market, but were willing to take a chance on a startup um, in order to gain access to this market and basically using us as their marketing force for free. It turns out in the latter camp, there were almost no lenders that wanted to do that. And so mm-hmm. we were effectively, our hand was forced to build this platform, um, basically a free tool to gain dealer adoption. And this tool, the tool that we decided to do was effectively a form fill. And the reason why it worked is credit applications have more or less over 90% of their fields are the same. So on every credit application, you're putting in your name, your address, where you work, your income, et cetera. And generally, there's only like one or two fields that a lender will ask and another lender wouldn't ask. And so the form field technology did provide the value of um, you know eliminating the, the need to rekey. Now, the challenges were, were, were apparent. And um, you know, first... <laughs> We had a software team of one, which was you, Dan. That, that, that was the only person, that, only person in, in engineering. And so if you're starting out with one person building literally everything. And, ev- you, yep. and that person had never written code professionally before. Exactly. And so you're going to have a platform that breaks a lot. And yeah. I will always take getting to speed, you know, speed to market when you're a new company and you're building your MVP over getting squash, squashing every bug, but it does present problems in that uh, the value we were trying to add was speed and ease of use. And so you had a lot of challenges that, you know, if something broke down, you know, then the dealer would get frustrated. But we were generally able to overcome those. But that was effectively the initial, the initial, uh, you know, first six months was more or less just a re- eliminating rekeying. I, I do remember we had. I forget the name of the, our first dealer customer, but I remember there was there was a woman who was the F and I manager there, and she was just unbelievably patient with us. 
I mean, we, she must have encountered tens of errors a week. And each time I would give her a call and I would say, hey, I saw there was an error. I fixed it now. And she would say, oh, okay. Thank yes, you. Uh, Janine from Motorcycle Mall. Yes, Janine from Motorcycle Mall. Wow. Um, so that's, that's a blast from the past. It's interesting dynamics that are worth pointing out about lenders in the power sports space versus auto space. And maybe you could kind of create a brief ontology between you know, those, you know, they're captive lenders and, and what are the other types? The way that auto finance and power sports finance works um, is you have basically, uh, I would say, four groups of lenders. The first lenders are the captives. So uh, you might be familiar with Ford Credit, uh, you know, Honda Financial. Basically, a captive just means that the financing arm is owned by the manufacturer, the car manufacturer themselves. And the reason why the car manufacturers have these is it helps them move units much more efficiently by guaranteeing that they have uh, efficient and uh, cost of capital and, and cost of debt available for their consumers. The second type of lenders are the banks. So uh, you might be familiar with Capital One as a major auto lender, Chase Bank. Um, in our market, it's Synchrony, uh, BB&T, which is now being rebranded as Truist with their SunTrust merger. Uh, those are kind of the big banks, and these banks generally operate in the prime side and offer, uh, I would say, a pretty substantial amount of the credit available in the market. Uh, the third type of lenders are the credit unions. So credit unions tend to be, not always, but tend to be regional players um, who tend to lend locally to consumers, generally in the prime space, but some of them uh, uh, can can also go into the near prime market as well. Uh, fourth category of lenders are the non-bank lenders. So these are folks primarily in the auto space. They tend to serve the subprime and near prime markets, not the prime markets. And the reason why is unlike a bank um, who can lend out deposits, which is very cheap cost of capital for them, uh, they tend to get their capital from either other banks or from capital markets, which tends to be uh, more expensive than deposit funding. And because of that, they're kind of forced into serving the near prime or, or not or, or subprime market. In our space, uh, there's such uh, so few players in the market um, that uh, you know we found that we've been able to operate as in, in both the, the prime and near prime markets, even though we're not a bank. Um, and part of this is because most of the manufacturers don't have captives, so they need to partner with, with lenders like ourselves to be able to offer the same value as a captive might offer. Uh, so for example, when you see 0% financing on TV, um, that is typically offered through a captive in the auto market, but because a lot of the manufacturers don't have captives, they provide the subsidies to lenders like ourselves um, who provide it to consumers, which results in a lot of sales. In the in the captive model, um, where does the capital come from? So in the captive model, uh, there's there's basically two types of captives. There's a white label bank. So for example, some of the auto manufacturers are white labels of either Santander or Chase Bank. So uh, Chrysler, I believe, until recently, they may have just switched off. Used to be Santander. Uh, I believe Volvo and a few other manufacturers are Chase Bank, and so it's actually a bank just branded in either in a joint venture uh, or branding, um, basically, um, you know, all their money's actually come from a bank behind the scenes. In the vast majority of cases, most of the captives in the auto market fund themselves through the securitization markets. 
Um, and so the securization markets, you're basically uh, you're issuing a bond or, or, or term financing and uh, insurance companies and asset managers are, are supplying the capital for that. Got it. So in terms of cost of capital, it seems like the sort of standard banks have the cheapest because they have deposits. And then after that, uh, it's the captives, maybe through bonds, and then do the subprime lenders come last? So it just depends. So the captives, uh, so for example, Mercedes, uh, they're primarily prime borrowers, so they get extremely cheap financing through the securization markets. Um, almost all the large subprime lenders also get their capital through securization markets, but because it's subprime paper, the cost of funds is higher. So when it comes to non-depository sources of funds, the cost is mainly a function of the actual quality of the debt. That, that's absolutely correct. When you look at all these lenders, what is the benchmark by which you would evaluate their business? What I'm trying to get is, are the, are the uh, captive lenders sort of proper lending businesses or are they sort of just mechanisms to move manufacturer inventory? So their primary directive is the latter. But most of them are now so established and been around for such a long time that they actually are very strong and, and successful finance companies. And many of them have actually been spun out. So, for example, Ally Bank used to actually at one point in time be the captive for GM. And they've built an extremely successful, profitable business after the financial crisis. They basically almost went under in the financial crisis, or maybe they were bailed out. I can't recall, actually. But now they're their own thing. And, and that does happen periodically where uh, auto lenders will, will get spun out because they become just so large. Um, if you look in our market, Harley-Davidson Financial Services is a massively profitable entity for Harley and provides a lot of their earning streams. But it also adds some risk because you're, you pointed out, you're, you're absolutely right. Their primary directive is to help the motor company move more units, which sometimes is at odds with great credit. Um, but I, I would say the ones who are who have been around who have been around for more than one cycle generally have you know best practices in place from an underwriting perspective, which is generally reflected in the fact that you could see from their securization tapes that the performance is very consistent. Double clicking on captive lenders, you know, I imagine all these cases the auto manufacturer comes first. Um, what? What makes a manufacturer decide like, oh, we need to bring a, a lender in-house? Sure. So there's a couple, there's a few different decisions. Uh, number one, availability of credit. So do I think that I will have a counterparty that will consistently lend to uh, my customers? That's kind of your first order of operations. Number two is a profitability. Uh, so do I have the, the focus, the capital necessary, and the expertise to stand up a lender? And will those costs be outweighed by the profit that I'll make from lending? And so generally, a lot of the second most common reason is uh, you literally just make a lot of money by having your own captive. So the first things first right. is they want to make sure they have a steady uh, counterparty. And sometimes there is some brand affiliate, um, there's some brand advantages. So for example, uh, let's say you get a loan from Ford, Ford Credit. Well, they're also doing your servicing. So as you're paying back the loan, they have like a captive audience. They, they, they uh, have a captive audience of you, and they could start giving you promotional offers for new Fords. Whereas if Chase Bank financed you, 
you don't really have the exact same uh, connection with the consumer. So it's a, another great way for them to own the relationship with the consumer over the long run. Um, a lot of the time, the manufacturers will start out in the commercial side of the house, which is the floor planning side. So if you've ever wondered how an auto dealership can have $3 million of cars on their lot, it's because they actually have a loan against that inventory. That's called floor planning. So a lot of the cap, uh, the manufacturers will start in the floor planning business and then add on retail financing. In the auto space, all these guys have been around for so long that you know you you wouldn't be able to remember a time where they weren't doing the retail financing. But in the power sports, where the market's a little bit more nascent from a financing perspective, um, you you see the cycle of bank floor planning getting replaced by manufacturer captive on the floor planning side, and then ultimately bringing in house the retail side. So we, we do see that in the power sports space happening. Yeah. While we're talking about loans, maybe you could walk us through the life cycle of one and at each point explain who is making money starting from when it's originated to when it gets sold off to when it gets serviced. Um, if it would be helpful, I could talk about the three ways that you actually fund a business um, and structure a business if you're a non-bank lender uh, because it actually impacts the way sure. in which you make money. So when you, you step back and let's just talk about a loan. So with a loan, you have a, uh, a couple different income streams. Number one, origination fees. Um, for non-bank lenders, depending on the state, for the most part, the origination fees either come from the dealers, so they might pay you a fee for originating loan, or you might actually pay them, depending on where you are on the credit spectrum and what asset we're talking about. Then the manufacturers might pay you they might pay you a subsidy to buy down your interest rate to offer more attractive rates to consumers, or they might just pay you something for an incremental sale. So that's called an origination fee, and this fee is paid to you uh, either at time of origination, the time you make the loan, or shortly thereafter by either the dealer or the manufacturer. Second income stream is the interest on the loan itself. So let's say the interest on the loan is 5%. You have a $10,000 loan. Um, you know, your annualized rate of interest is five, five percent. So you're making, uh, you know, $500 a year, theoretically, if the principal is outstanding at all times, but it's not because it actually, it pays down. The way in which you structure it as a business is there are three ways to fund your business. The first one is whole loan sales. Whole loan sales means you originate a loan. It never touches your balance sheet. You just sell off that piece of paper. That's what lending club does. Um, it's also what uh, many other of the marketplace lenders do. And there you're in, you have two income streams. You have the premium on the loan. So let's say I originate a loan for $10,000. I might sell it at what's called 102, which is a 2% premium, meaning I have $10,000 of principal, but I'm, the other party is buying it for 10200 and you make the $200 spread. The second revenue stream is called the servicing spread. It might only cost you 50 basis points to service the loan. Servicing means every single thing that happens post-origination. So it's the management of all the systems that accept payments and then also make collections call if the customers go delinquent all the way through charge-off, etc. It might only cost you 50 basis points to service the loan, but the person who bought that loan might be paying you, say, 1%. And so the spread of whatever they're paying you in the servicing spread minus your, uh, your servicing expense is called the servicing spread. And that's fee income. Interest income is all the interest you earn for the loan. The second way that you finance your business is called warehouse financing. 
Warehouse financing means you have $100 million of loans. JP Morgan gives you a loan for $80 million against those $100 million in loans. And then you post the $20 million uh, junior capital to their line. So you take all the losses before they feel any losses, which enables them to lend to you at a very low rate and enables you to earn a spread on the assets. So let's walk through an example. You have $100 million of loans. You're getting an $80 million loan from JP Morgan at 5%, but your loans net 10%. So on the 80%, you're spreading 5%, and then on your 20, you get the full 10. Since 80 is four times the size of 20, you're getting four to one leverage, which means four times your spread. So remember, your spread is 10 minus 5. So that'd be 4 times 5, which is 20, plus you get to keep your own 10. So that gives you a return of equity of 30% on the assets. That's called warehouse financing. It's probably the most common way to finance a business. Um, it's what uh, we do. It's what almost all, m- most non-bank lenders do. The reason why they prefer that to whole loan sales is whole loan sale is riskier for the buyer, right? Because you have no skin in the game. And so when the market turns against you, the whole loan buyers leave much faster than the warehouse lenders. And the warehouse lenders, remember, you take all the losses before they feel anything. So it's a much safer position. So they're much more likely to stick with you when a recession happens. So that's why uh, it's actually far more common to be a warehouse uh, business than a forward flow focused business. But I'll, I'll get into some of the details uh, in a second. And the third way you finance the business is called securitization. So you take that warehouse, you accumulate a lot of assets, and then you issue term financing through the securitization market. It's like a bond. And it's structured relatively similarly to a warehouse line from an economics perspective, except the cost of funds is far, far lower. And it's guaranteed. It's term financing. So it's guaranteed. Warehouse lines could theoretically get pulled. Term financing, once you get the term financing, you can't get pulled. And the in the term finance, sorry, in the uh, securitization world, your buyer is just anyone on Wall Street. Yeah, so for the most part, it's insurance companies, pension funds, uh, asset managers, uh, those sort of things. Help me understand why that is a better economic model than the warehouse one. It's it's just way cheaper. So the insurance, yeah, so securitization is very safe. So you're getting your assets rated by Moody's, S&P, et cetera, plus the banks that are leading your securitization, let's say JP Morgan or Goldman Sachs, they do a tremendous amount of research on your assets to make sure they understand what the performance is going to be. And so when they issue that out to a much broader market, the buyers of that paper are buying a very safe position. You know, The assets could be rated AAA, let's say, which means very, very low likelihood that you have any sort of real problems. And when they're issuing, they're just issuing to people who, for regulatory reasons, need to buy rated securities, whereas warehouse lines don't have to be rated. And the people who are, for regulatory reasons, have to buy rated securities uh, require a far lower return than the warehouse lenders. So an insurance company might only need 3% return, where a bank might need 5 for whatever reason. And it, it's what I'm, what I'm guessing here is that for a startup, it's easier to start out with a warehouse line of credit. And once it has more of a track record, it can start issuing secure. That's absolutely right. So it's all, it's extremely challenging unless you're in a, a, a really well-trodden asset to securitize before you have at least three years of track record. 
And you're generally not supposed to securitize until you have at least $200 million in loans because you need you need two things. One is you need to be able to prove scale because the buyers of these assets want size. And two, you have to be able to prove that there will be more deals coming through the market. right? You don't want to be a one-off deal because why would they do all this work on you if they can only put capital to work once? So usually that requires scale. Uh, and in order to get a rating, you typically need three years of track record, uh, with, with, with a few exceptions. If you're going to securitize before that and you're doing it before you're able to get a rating, you're advised to have fewer than $200 million in outstandings because um, the people who buy non, there's a much smaller pool of people who buy non rated securitizations. And so you don't, the worst that could happen to you, just like in a fundraise for a company, is to be undersubscribed. Right. And, and just to sort of uh, apply this to, to the rest of uh, the upstart lending world, you know, these folks like SoFi and Upstart, what, what financing model are they? So the way that I look at the world is you have a spectrum of assets. The more commoditized the asset, uh, generally the thinner the margins, but the larger the origination opportunity. And usually your options for financing are less. The more niche the asset generally you're able to finance it through various means. What I mean by that is if you're going to be a mortgage lender, mortgage is the largest consumer asset. It's the most commoditized and the margins are unbelievably thin. It is almost impossible unless you're doing some really weird esoteric part of mortgage for you to be able to warehouse finance it. The reason why is the margins are too thin. You have to forward flow it. Student lending for the most part you have to do that. Uh, and, and just for our listeners, what do you mean? Uh, yes, yeah, so whole loan sales. Sorry, I apologize. For, forward flow and so it's, whole loan sales are synonymous. Um, SoFi is interesting. Uh, they started off with a combination of warehouse lines and forward flow, and they still have that combination. And now they primarily uh, finance through securitization. So they have something like 20 counterparties. Their production is massive now, so they need to have a ton of counterparties. And they securitize all the time. Um, But they've been originated for several years now. Um, And I I would actually argue, uh, I I think SoFi was on the forefront of sophistication from a capital markets perspective, uh, well before basically all the other guys started becoming sophisticated. So Prosper actually has pretty interesting syndicates as well now. Uh, that run through securization. But uh, you know, it was really kind of SoFi was the first one to really build out a diversified funding model. So really the way it works is, depending on your asset, you're going to be pushed towards forward flow or warehouse line initially. As you get scale, you want diversified no matter what, because any individual strategy is just going to be, is going to leave you too exposed. That's interesting. Now I want to take us back to the Octane lending story. So six months in, you had raised some capital. I had just left. What happened next? Absolutely. So uh, you had just departed. So our very first thing was uh, our entire engineering department no longer exists. So we have to solve this. And so there was another team at Octane Lending, um, which had basically what I would say a a fully, uh, sorry, there's another team at Dream Adventures, which had what I would say a fully complementary skill set to me. Uh, and to Michael, who, who's our other co-founder. 
Um, what I mean by that is Michael and I were both, you know, kind of management consultants by trade. So we had no real skills <laughs> and this other team had a phenomenal front end engineer who was a great, who had a great product mind, a phenomenal back end engineer who was a great uh, startup CTO and um, a CEO who was a phenomenal sales and marketing guy. And so we joined forces with them. Uh, where one of them became head of product, then we had another one become the CTO, and the other one the head of sales. And uh, it ended up being very, uh, uh, it ended up being extremely beneficial for us because we were able to get all the skills in one fell swoop onto the team that we needed to bring the company to the next level. And because we had the seed funding, it enabled us to do that. So now you have a team and this common app for financing and reference the business model back then was loan origination fees and insurance origination fees what happened next absolutely so we raised about a million and a half in december of uh of, of 2014 uh so it was a round led by contour venture partners who's been with us uh, every round since we started they, they had done on decks they had a, a a very very healthy understanding of financial services and fintech um, and rider insurance, which was the motorcycle insurance company, the strategic that I was mentioning earlier. And uh, we worked for a couple months and we launched our MVP in uh, December of 2014. So basically around the same time we closed the full round, we launched our MVP. By February, it was apparent that our business case had been cracked. Uh, effectively, we had real... Is that a, is that a good thing or so, a bad thing? In my opinion, it's a good thing, but uh, at the time seemed like a very bad thing. So it's actually a very interesting story. Um, as you mentioned, we made all of our money through loan referral fees for the most part and a small amount of money through insurance. And we had this credit union on our platform that made up like 90% of our revenue and over two thirds of the platform usage. And we got a phone call in, in the beginning of February that uh, the plat, the the credit union that had made up most of our usage, um, they were leaving the platform. Uh, they decided they didn't want to do power sports lending anymore, and they were making some changes in, in there in the lending organization. So I called in all hands. I told everyone phones down, and I uh, said the credit union's leaving our platform. I uh, and um, but this is going to force us to focus on the true value in the market. And the true value in the market is using our technology, not as an aggregator, but to fill the holes in the lending market that don't exist and provide a technology powered lending experience that helps consumers access this market and finance managers efficiently close deals. And that was the Genesis moment for why we created Roadrunner Financial, which is the lender that we own. Uh, it's a wholly owned subsidiary that uh, it's a kind of think of it as our captive on our platform. And Roadrunner Financial drives almost all of the enterprise value of our business today. And the reason why I say it was good, our business case was cracked. We basically realized that one, there probably weren't enough lenders to actually make this business a venture scale business because there just weren't many lenders in the market. So there wasn't really pressure for them to pay us very much. And two, the much broader issue was that the market was just totally underserved. So that's interesting. You have this realization that there aren't good lenders or there could be better lenders. Is it from the customer experience side? Could the borrowers be having a better experience? Or did you feel like there's a population that wasn't getting served? 
So this is a combination. So uh, I want to step back. There are good lenders in this market. I mean, uh, you know, B, uh, BB&T has been serving this market for, for decades. Uh, so has Synchrony. Uh, and and they're, they're very large and they do a great job. But we believe that we could provide value uh, by serving a large part of the population that's not served by those those banks, uh, namely the, the near-prime uh, and non-prime markets. While combining uh, a, a technology and experience, basically instantaneous financing, uh, that would mm-hmm. also add value to the prime customers. And that's kind of what our differentiator is, the combination of a credit product that expands the market by 50% with uh, technology that mm-hmm. cuts the, the time of a deal from 45 or 30 minutes down to five minutes. So here you are, the biggest credit union on your platform leaves. I imagine in the back of your mind, you had this thought of starting up a lender. Now you're going to do it. How do you start? So um, you, you kind of there are a few things you have to do. So the very first thing is, how are you going to score credit applications? The advantage for us is we already had the software built. So effectively, all we needed to do was build credit models. So we teamed up with uh, Ray Duggins, who's our chief risk officer. He used to run Risk at GE Capital Consumer, uh, Center Charter Bank. Uh, before that, he was an executive at American Express and in a, in a few other banks like Bank of New York, et cetera. And uh, he had a tremendous amount of experience in consumer lending. And um, the two of us worked together um, and then with Experian to uh, basically come up with a data set that we can use to backtest uh, a credit model that we were building. And so that took us uh, about six months. And then once we had the credit model up and running and we kind of had our, our, uh, our features and we knew what the credit performance was going to be, uh, we started raising a warehouse line. So first problem, how do you underwrite? Second problem, how do you actually fund loans? So this was back in uh, January slash February of 2016. So if you step into your time machine and go back to then, what you'll realize is that was probably the worst time to raise capital for a startup lender since the financial crisis. You had two major issues. The first issue is that a lot of the whole loan buyers are starting to get spooked with Lending Club and a lot of the other tech titans in the consumer unsecured space. The second issue is the securitization markets in the auto market were starting to back up and people thought we were going to have effectively Armageddon in the credit markets. Now, fortunately, in retrospect, you'll realize that this was just a blip of a few months and everything kind of normalized. But when you're a startup, every month is like a year. And so those three months of chaos in the credit markets were unbelievably painful for us and, 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 and problematic when we went out to raise. But fortunately for us, uh, you know, effectively, it forced our hand to become a balance sheet lender, a warehouse finance lender. The reason why is uh, none of the whole loan buyers were ready to play ball, especially with the new regime here, given what was going on with some of the, the big players. And the only people really, really kind of still in the market, you know, kind of going back to my earlier point that, you know, you can't just rely on whole loan buyers because they sometimes can be fickle was the warehouse, warehouse lenders. Mm -hmm. And I knew nothing about warehouse lending at this point. I was, uh, you know, 26 years old, maybe at that point. Mm -hmm. And um, I did the exact same thing I did when I went to go raise venture capital. I prioritized who I would pitch in what order based off how the, the inverse of how much I wanted to work with them. 
Meaning, meaning I met with the, the people who I, I, I were kind of throwaway meetings I knew weren't going to work with us um, first. And then so I could hone my pitch over time. And basically what I did is every single time there was a question asked that I didn't know the answer to, I'd write it down, I'd research it, and I'd learn a good answer for it. Mm-hmm. And by the fourth or fifth meeting, I was a pro. And within a matter of about uh, mm-hmm. five weeks, we had over five term sheets for 25 to $50 million facilities. Um, mm-hmm. We ended up closing a $25 million line with a, with a hedge fund uh, that, that, no, uh, that, that September 30th of 2016. And we started lending on June 1st. Um, uh, and so by the time we had picked up some traction, we had the $25 million line. So we were, and we had also simultaneously closed our Series A and we had the funding for the business. Mm-hmm. And so re- reaching out to venture capitalists is pretty easy. They're all pretty well networked. But how do you reach out to someone who can give you a warehouse line of credit? So <laughs> um, I'm not sure if you remember this from our time back in Austin. I probably sent about before LinkedIn got smart and started blocking all the free messages. There used to be this hack where you could join a LinkedIn group and you could message anyone you want from that. Mm-hmm. So if you remember from our time back in Austin, I sent probably 4,000 personalized messages to credit unions and other lenders. Uh-huh. I used the exact same research hacks to figure out what <laughs> lenders were out there. I also had a little bit of an advantage, um, you know, mm-hmm. g- given, um, who our friends are from college, a lot of them were working at investment banks. Mm-hmm. And so um, I was able to talk to some of them for advice of who the players were. And I, I can give you all, all the answers right now. The way warehouse financing works, you have three groups of players. You have the hedge funds, you have uh, the commercial banks, and then you have the big money center banks. So the hedge funds are people like Fortress, the big BDCs like Aries, Monroe, um, you know those types of people. The commercial banks are people like Capital One, Midcap, CapSource, and then the big money center banks are all the bullish bracket investment banks that you've heard of, like Credit Suisse, J.P. Morgan, Deutsche Bank, etc. And mm-hmm. effectively, the hedge funds are the most expensive, but they will also be the most aggressive and willing to work with you before you have much of a track record. And so that's their advantage. So effectively, the trade is. They're expensive, but they're taking the most risk. Mm-hmm. The midway banks are kind of halfway between them and the money center banks, where they're generally half the price of the hedge fund, sometimes cheaper than that. But most of them don't actually have securitization desks. And so they can only be so cheap. Mm-hmm. And then once you get to the big money center banks, they're very, very cheap because they want you for the securitization business, which is lucrative. So there's some cross-sell there for them. Mm-hmm. And so they could give you a subsidized warehouse line mm-hmm in exchange for you doing securitization business with them. And so that's why they're by far the cheapest. Um, you know, the people like JP Morgan, Wells Fargo, et cetera. So here you are, you have your warehouse line, your underwriting model and your series A, which gives you some of your own capital lend out. What's next? Here's the fun part. You set up, you split, you, you're planning, you do all the compliance work, you get all the approvals from the regulators, you get your lending licenses and you set up all your underwriting rules, you have all of your historical data, and day one comes. For us, that was June 1st, 2016. Go, 9 a.m. It's all on. Mm-hmm. Roadrunner mm-hmm. Financial live in the market, multiple press releases, etc. Mm-hmm. Nine applications. Zero mm-hmm. approvals. 
and the <laughs> types of applicants look nothing like what we thought saw in the historical data. So then you have to readjust. Basically, everything you thought was going to happen, the market is going to be different. It just is. And so we then had to adjust, you know, and then we did our first loan was funded um, on June 9th, nine days after we started. Uh, but, you know, it's the same thing across all startups, right? And, and you know this better than anyone because you, you've done, you've built so many apps yourself. The best feedback is the market feedback. And this is why you should try to get something out as quickly as you can to just to try to understand what reality actually is. Because you could do all the back testing, you do all the research possible, but nothing is going to be as realistic as launching in the market. And what was the biggest dissonance between expectation and reality? Yeah, so I think we kind of underestimated, um, and we we knew that you would have to build relationships with the dealers to get a representative pool of applications, and that became we had that thesis was proved day one. We were the new kids on the block, and mm-hmm. so we had no uh, no relationships yet, and we knew that we'd have to invest tremendously. We'd have to prove our value to the dealers so they could tr- uh, trust us and treat us, uh, you know, and so that we we would be great partners for each other. Um, it also, we were uh, way, way too conservative day one, but we, we made corrections on that mm-hmm. almost immediately um, to, to basically allow for a, uh, you know, a credit product that actually met the needs of the market. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so I think what you're alluding to is, at, you know, you launch, you're too conservative. So that's an easy change to the underwriting criteria, but then you need dealer relationships, which sounds like, uh, it sounds like you would hire a sales team. Absolutely. Right. So, um, the way that we structure our sales team, uh, we have basically three major sections. We have, uh, kind of the equivalent of a CSR team. So these are folks that, uh, help dealers uh, through their uh, everyday deals, problem solve with them, provide support, and then we have what's called the RSMs, which are the folks who are traveling to dealers and building long-term relationships with them. And then we have a partnerships team, which works with the manufacturers uh, to figure out what ways we could serve the manufacturers to add the most value to them uh, and, and also generate partnerships so that we could provide uh, competitive financing at the dealership level. Walk me through the major milestones Roadrunner hit between launching back in 2016 and, and today. Yeah, so the the number one learning I would say um, that that has <laughs> I think we underestimated. So I'll, I'll give you an example. We had a, our very first manufacturer partner. We knew that they had uh, over three hundred million dollars of declines a year, and so it was our assumption that okay, if we just cover this one manufacturer, we should see a pretty large percentage of those declines. Here's the problem. Mm-hmm. The problem is the way that the dealerships work in our market is they're multi-line. So if you sell Polaris, chances are you also sell BRP, Kawasaki, Suzuki, or some combination thereof. Mm-hmm. So even though this one manufacturer had $300 million of, of declines spread over 1,000 dealerships, mm-hmm. that might have only been $300 million of applications out of, you know, uh, you know, five billion dollars of applications of those dealerships and so if you're only covering a very small amount of a dealer's business you're not giving them enough at bats to learn your product and i think this is actually true in almost Mm -hmm. any b2b sale you kind of need to create enough opportunities for use that your end user can overcome the switching costs to start using you as a platform and so every single time we've seen a momentous step up in 
in, uh, in growth and adoption has been whenever we launch a new product that enables us to cover more of a dealer's business. And we totally underestimated that for the first six months. Forgive me if this is too prying, but can you give me a quantitative sense of Octane's success? So uh, if you look at most of the startup lenders, the tech lenders who have scaled to generate uh, you know, at one point in time a uh, billion dollars in market cap, almost all of them reach a billion dollars in originations over uh, a four to six year period. There are some people who have who have scaled much faster than that, obviously, but the vast majority of people will scale to a billion dollars in outstandings or originations over four to six years. Um, and we are kind of dead center of, of that trajectory. We're growing faster than Lending Club um, and we're, we're you know slower than SoFi, but kind of in between the two of them. Um, our, our target is mm-hmm. to exceed a uh, billion dollars in originations by uh, 2022. Um, and we're, we're, we're tracking ahead of schedule on that. The classic way of measuring the success of a lending business is return on equity. Does that apply to Octane Lending? Absolutely. So return on equity is actually an interesting metric. So uh, most especially fin businesses will trade at a multiple of book based off what their return on equity is. So kind of at a, at a high level, this isn't always the case, but most of the time, like if your ROE is 10, you trade at one times book. If your ROE is 20, you trade two times book. Your ROE is 30, you trade three times by book, et cetera, et cetera. The reason why the metric doesn't really work for companies like ours and other tech companies is um, our ROEs are so astronomical because of the way that we're financing the business and also the asset themselves that we believe that we're much more of a, a multiple of earnings business, more like green sky than a traditional specialty finance business. Um, so Green Sky doesn't trade as a multiple book. They, they sell off all the production. So there is no book and their ROEs would be astronomical if you wanted to calculate it that way because they basically hold no balance sheet. Um, and instead they trade as a multiple of earnings. Uh, ways in which we look at success metrics for ourselves is the, the premiums that our assets produce relative to similar assets for the same level of risk. So Taking out the jargon, because that's a lot of jargon. What it actually just means is mm-hmm. if you have one loss rate in a certain credit spectrum, mm-hmm. what is the net return after losses of that asset relative to another asset that has that same loss rate and that same FICO? And so what we bet, mm-hmm. yeah. Mm-hmm. So that's basically alpha. Uh, yeah, alpha. That's exactly right. And so the alpha of the loan, we always mm-hmm. like to compare ourselves to auto. Um, and and we, we generate uh, our, our loans are, are are have much higher much better returns than auto loans. Uh, several reasons for this. One is mm-hmm. there's just so much competition and private equity capital piled into auto that the margins have basically been withered away because people have been either forced to loosen underwriting or or, or compromise on pricing relative to the level of risk that they're actually taking. Uh, and, the, and the second reason is we have very efficient processes and distribution uh, where um, you know, all of our underwriting is automated um, and we own our software platform at the point of sale. So we're not paying fees to brokers uh, or to other software companies for the generation of loans. Zooming out from Octane Lending, I want to talk about the rest of the lending space. What are some of the more interesting fintech lenders? Absolutely. So the, the way that I like to think about um, what drives value in lending companies or companies that monetize through lending. So these are still technology companies, but they're monetizing through lending. 
is there's two ways you can really generate business value. Number one is proprietary origination channel. Number two is a premium that the asset that you're originating generates relative to similar assets for the same level of risk. So it's that alpha concept we were just talking about. So two ways. You either find a unique way to acquire customers or you generate alpha for an asset. Those are literally, the, the, in my opinion, the two mm-hmm. categories for the types of businesses that generate value. And, and what are some really great examples? A- absolutely. So um, I, I actually... Uh, <laughs> People love to hate a firm. People go back and forth on a firm. I, I had a, I hated a firm for a little bit. I'm actually a massive a firm. Uh, I'm, I'm in love with a firm. I think uh, they are probably the, in my opinion, the most interesting technology company attacking lending at scale. And um, you know, for the most part, I, I think about their business. Like if you're betting on. Like if you look at the valuations they raised at relative to the size they are, it's kind of insane and the amount of money they burn, et cetera, et cetera. But the bet really isn't where they are today. It's where they're going. And, you know, effectively you look at it, you have companies that are like synchrony that are, you know, market cap north of $20 billion. The question is, do you think that, um, you know, firm, you know, five years from now will be able to replace someone like a synchrony or, uh, you know, city retail services or something along those lines. And I think that with their technology that they've been able to build and the way in which they've structured uh, their data, which, which basically powers all of their decisions, I don't think anyone is going to be, is kind of going to come close to competing with them. So a couple of things that I really love about their business. Mm-hmm. Number one, it's a point of sale financing business. That's a partnership driven business. The reason why I love that is all of the guys who have gone public so far, whether it's on deck or lending club, whoever uh, they've all got crushed by uh, by CAC and they don't have proprietary origination channels. And so that means that their CAC is never going to go down and their margins are really weak. Um, the partnership model coupled with point of sale basically gives you an insulated uh insulated uh, acquisition of your customer, uh, which makes it very, very efficient. So they're setting themselves up to have good unit economics. So that's kind of the basis for generating a profitable business. So how big does a firm get? I, I think a firm could be, you know, easily the size of Synchrony at least. So I, I could see them over the next you know, three to five years, if they're successful, um, you know, being having a market cap, you know, north of twenty billion dollars. I'm a I'm a huge believer, and I'm 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 really impressed with what they've been able to do. The things that could really um, damage them is that they are growing very rapidly, so they they could have some very expensive credit mistakes. Um, but you know, the, the, they seem to be on top of data, um, and so that that would you know, hopefully they're able to react to whatever changes they need to make responsibly. Um, so that, that's on that side of the house. In terms of uh, generating a premium of asset relative to similar peers, uh, let me let me think for a second. Obviously, octane lending, mm-hmm. but uh, let, 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 let me <laughs> let me think for a second. I mean, Upstart's pretty interesting. So one thing I really like about Upstart is um, they they focus on this KPI that they refer to, I believe, as robotic underwriting. What it actually just means is a human doesn't touch the loan between the time it's applied and the customer gets the cash. And I think they're at something like 50% now. And the reason why I put this in alpha category is um, you know, effectively they're able to do this without compromising 
their loan performance. And because of that, they're able to have much better unit economics because it's just much more efficient for them to generate loan. But ultimately, it will actually lead to them having even better credit performance because speed and manual checks, manual checks lead to worse applicants selecting. So you get adverse selection that way. And so the more you could automate without adding more risk and fraud, the more you'll actually get better loan performance. So I, I, I really, uh, I think what Upstart's doing is also pretty neat. And I love their their focus on robotic underwriting. They also focus on a, a more challenging underwriting segment, which is kind of that near prime and thin file markets, which I think is pretty neat. What do you think the lending space looks like in five or 10 years? And what incumbents are displaced by startups that have yet to be started or were started in the last five years? So I'm not going to name names, but it would be very interesting to see if the, ma- the the titans of some of the thin margin assets actually survive the next recession. They all have such massive, uh, they're currently all unprofitable. They have massive production and they have really thin margins. So it'd be interesting to see whether or not they're able to survive uh, any shock to losses. And that's something that I think will be very interesting. Yeah. Um, I'm of two minds with SoFi. Um, on the one hand, uh, you know their whole thing is that they're acquiring customers through student loan refi, which is kind of an interesting thing. And so maybe they're generating some sort of brand loyalty. And if there's any company they could do it, it's probably SoFi because mm-hmm. they have an int- they have people do it like them, mm-hmm. uh, consumers who engage in their product. Mm-hmm. I don't I don't know if you refi with, with SoFi, but mm-hmm. everyone I've talked to is refi with SoFi really likes it. Mm-hmm. Uh, the problem is that product mm-hmm. is just not. Um, economically viable on a, on its own. So they have to figure out a way to expand the customer relationship. Mm-hmm. If they're able to successfully mm-hmm. do that, I, I think SoFi could be a pretty interesting company in five or 10 years. Um, of mm-hmm. course, I believe that a firm will be very large in five years. Um, I think we'll have a winner in, in the payment space. So maybe like a transfer wise could be mm-hmm. a, a pretty colossal force. Mm-hmm. Um, I think they're a very interesting mm-hmm. company. Jason, this has been a fascinating discussion of the story of Octane Lending, the different flavors of lenders, how to get a warehouse line of credit, and many other exciting topics. Thanks for coming on the Operator's Manual. Thank you so much for having me.